Thank you for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. Today, Greg and I are going to discuss Emily Abbott's magnum opus against world literature on the politics of untranslatability. This is a pivotal monograph in the study of comparative literature, and it ushers a significant turn in theorizing about what world literature is and what it should be as a discipline in the U.S. Academy. Emily Apter is currently professor of comparative literature and French at NYU, and she's a major contributor to the ongoing debate about world literature theory. She's a Harvard graduate, and her areas of expertise include philosophizing in languages, political theory, translation theory, continental philosophy, psychoanalysis, and French and German literature. Well, the book can be a hard read since it deals with quite a lot of philosophies and theories, right? In fact, as far as I know, not many people ended up reading the entire book. It's funny that you hear about the book being mentioned almost on a daily basis in grad school because it's the thing complete, right? And yet, most scholars ended up only citing it in their scholarly writings. Seriously? Oh yeah, if you search major universities' library online system, you got. Four book reviews in total since the book's publication in 2014. Two of them were perfunctorily short, and one is actually the review written by David Damrosch. And we have mentioned Damrosch before in a different episode, right? Along with Abder Said, Spivak,、uh, Casanova, to name just a few. He is also a very important leading figure in comparative literature. And we'll come back to Damrosch's review, of course, near the end of this episode. Right, and here's an official summary of the book that you can find on its Amazon page. Against World Literature on the Politics of Untranslatability argues for a rethinking of comparative literature, focusing on the problems that emerge when large-scale paradigms of literary studies ignore the politics of the untranslatable in the realm of those words that are continually retranslated, mistranslated, transferred from one language to another. Were especially resistant to substitution. In the place of world literature, a dominant paradigm in the humanities, one grounded in market-driven notions of readability and universal appeal, Apter proposes a plurality of world literatures oriented around philosophical concepts and geopolitical pressure points. The history and theory of the language that constructs world literature is critically examined, with a special focus on Weltliteratur. Literary world systems, narrative ecosystems, language borders and checkpoints, theologies of translation, and planetary devolution, in a book set to revolutionize the discipline of comparative literature. Right, it does sound both legitimate and, while、well, at the same time, doesn't make much sense either, especially to an outsider. I know you've been spending a lot of time reading the book, so how would you summarize it? Well, here's the thing: before Apter. Academics in America assumed a readily and easily transferable and translatable system of knowledge when they begin to build this newly emerging and exciting field called comparative literature. So, world literature became overnight the world republic of literatures, meaning it used to be and may still be quite an essentialist, nationalist, whitewashed, Eurocentric discipline, right? So this arguably occurred with critical theory in the 1980s and post-colonial studies in the 1990s. The academic revolution towards building something like comparative literature drew itself from continental intellectual fashion and the multicultural inclusion espoused by critical theory, which is also, by the way, called Frankfurt School. Without being aware, American intellectuals appropriated these thoughts and ended up, according to Lawrence Venuti. Bringing back a cultural other as the same, 
In particular, American academics at the turn of the century were assuming that everything is translatable. So, literary and cultural theories like David Damrosch, Franco Moretti, and Pascal Casanova have warned against the wholesale import of foreign literature, and in some cases, literary tourism through a variety of contemporary post-colonial, neo-Marxist literary, sociological, and translation theory perspectives. Therefore, they began to problematize or politicize, if you will, this sort of whitewashed cosmopolitanism of world literature. Abder's main argument under this scholarly context and intellectual backdrop is to propose the notion of untranslatability as a general, if not utterly new, perspective, which is clearly drawn from Walter Benjamin's famous philosophical concept of the untranslatable as. A guiding principle and new approach or way of thinking, even to the study of comparative literature, and sometimes scholars do call it praxis, meaning the idea of the untranslatable can also be a sort of political tool. But more specifically, to understand what the book is really about, I think it's helpful for us to start with the title. We've got an absolutely catchy and ambitious one, namely. What kind of world literature is the author really against? And this is also the scholarly premise that her argument is based on, namely, what kind of world literature is she targeting at? Right. So, in the introduction of her book, she tells us that it is the lowercase world lit, namely, the descriptive catch-all, and also a sort of like a kish, if you will, that should be criticized. She sometimes also calls it a、uh, kind of entrepreneurial production of world lit, pointing at this sort of capitalist mode of producing knowledge. And by the way, this is not a flawless argument, and we will return to it soon. But here, she seems to be targeting at an institutionalized world lit, one that is often provincialized with reflexive endorsement of cultural equivalence and substitutability. And this means the problems with the current world literature and translation studies are not only European timeline, but also presumptive in its own right that everything is translatable or transmittable. Among other unreflective, unrigorous attempts of "quote unquote" worlding literatures into the American continent. So, in a nutshell, we can say that what Apter is against is the institutionalization of world literature. That's absolutely right. However, there's something that is unclear about her criticism on the capitalist slash entrepreneurial production of world literature, which is what kind of entrepreneurial production she's exactly referring to. Right? Does she realize that universities are by nature also a part of the capitalist system? Which means any work funded by the university is naturally an entrepreneurial production. Right? There are actually so many directions one can go from here, if one talks about the entrepreneurial production of world literature, because on the one hand there are independent entities out there, profit or nonprofit, that are doing businesses in in the publishing industry, and these small independent businesses do make a difference by democratizing knowledge. So someday you don't need to sell your house in order to get a college education. And let's say it's less likely nowadays for people to desire a degree in Spanish literature or a Spanish language as some kind of serious career advancement, since we now have Duolingo, Wikipedia, HarvardX, or edX to name just a tiny few. And who's to say, after all, that 
the educational quality provided by these independent platforms are less pedagogically rigorous than the academy. In fact, a lot of them are run exactly by academics. So when you point your fingers at any entrepreneurial, educational, or research attempt, both inside and outside of the academy, you always risk the danger of self-aggrandization. But it does leave a good opportunity here to think what kind of knowledge the university produces under the capitalist entrepreneurial drive. There is indeed this opportunity left unexplored, especially regarding a thorough Marxist analysis on why comparative literature itself in the past has failed to achieve what Emily Abbotter envisioned as authorial collectivism. And what's even more interesting is now that we envision knowledge can be collectively produced either through translation or other literary acts, there's also this opportunity to test the boundary between authorial authorship and the democratization of knowledge. But the big question here is first and foremost, the recognition that the university is essentially a big corporation operating on capital. That's right. It also seems like the book reads something like a manifesto of what Apter herself calls praxis. It is certainly a well-written manifesto, not on contemporary translation theory per se, but more on a prescriptive vision of comparative literature as a somewhat still developing but problematic discipline. Abner's expansive knowledge is in translation theory, uh, language philosophy, as you just pointed in the beginning of the episode, critical theory, uh, continental philosophy, psychoanalysis, and political fiction even, would render any reader a vast library of knowledge in each of these fields if one is willing to chisel away each chapter of her enlightening book. And it is absolutely certain that the work has its irreplaceable place in contemporary scholarship, pedagogically speaking. Certainly, scholars before her have been talking about decolonization, deprovincialization, and the politics of periodization. But this book made translation studies ever more important in the departments of comparative literature in the U.S. In fact, reading her book, one can't help think about all those seminal figures in the, in the cultural turn of contemporary translation studies as Susan Bassnett, Andre Lafaver, Gideon Truri, Harish Trivedi, and Lawrence Venuti. From the 1980s onward, as Damrosh points out, when he criticizes um, that Abitur has missed her opportunity to engage theoretically with these theorists, they had revolutionized a previously formalist field to address issues of power, inequality, and the thorniness of language. But also what I was reading Abitur's book, I couldn't help go all the way back to Walter Benjamin's essay on the untranslatable and Derrida's famous essay titled The Tower of Babel. So her work certainly has the evoking power to these classics of translation theory. Could you say more about this untranslatable idea? What does it mean for Apter as a praxis in turning the discipline around? Yes, I think it's going to take a lot of time if we begin with Benjamin's untranslatable, which can be another episode, right? Um, so why don't we just focus on Abder's proposal of untranslatability, which is the key concept of her work. And I think it's useful to start with the relationship between translation and meaning or semiology, since translation itself forever points at the issue of language and representation. And we'll expand from here. So for Abitur, the untranslatable challenges the limits of reference, meanings, or logos, because meanings are essentially 
transcendental and unthinkable. In fact, the issue of meaning had been touched upon quite often by ancient Greek and Chinese philosophers, especially on the inefficiency of language as a valid means of expression of our world and our reality. And therefore, for Abater, translation reflects hermeneutics, the truth, and logocentrism as well. Let's back up a little bit. Can you unpack what logos is? And what is the logocentrism that you just mentioned? Well, logos is the Greek for word. It's where we get the word logic from. When Aristotle talks about logos, he's referring to reasoned discourse or the argument. In theology, however, it's the word of the God or um, principle of divine reason and creative order identified, as we all know, in the uh, Gospel of John with the second person of the Trinity incarnate in Jesus Christ. Well, logocentrism points at Western philosophical and theological traditions that view the interpretation of words and language as knowable, interpretable, or translatable. And by this logic, the fundamental and superior expression of reality is also knowable, right? I really like your question because it directly links to Abder's argument for untranslatability in the era of the so-called translational turn. Specifically, such turn transitions from the epistemology that the world is knowable and, and interpretable to the epistemology that rationalism and appropriation sometimes do fail to make sense of the world and its diversity and difference. What Derrida would call diffihance, which is a coined term by himself. And this is where Abder's proposal of untranslatability absolutely jibes with post-structuralist thought where meanings are always dispersed, delayed, and different from its origin. What this means for theorizing translation method is not just challenging or overthrowing a conventional translation practice, namely the verbatim translation, which is, you know, when you translate, you do it word for word for the sake of respecting the original, right? Or you do your best in carrying out a sort of uh, equivalence between the original and the target language. But epistemologically speaking, it makes a scholar aware of any kind of cultural appropriation when you're working with two languages unconsciously, right? And in doing so, the translator slash rewriter gives up his or her authority of language. And that's the ideal how, you know, scholars should handle cross-cultural transmission in their study of world literatures. And here, Apter uses Alain Badiou's hyper-translation of Plato's Republic as an example, one that has recently caused quite an intellectual sensation in the academy. So just as we've talked about conventionally, over-translation is considered as too much of a digression from the original, and therefore violated the uh, conventional expectations that the translated work should be almost equivalent to the original, at least uh, semantically speaking. However, Abder believes Alain Badiou's translation to be a faithful philosophical transcription that refuses capitulation to this conventional editorial normalization. In fact, it is considered as even a sublation, which is again a very familiar Hegelian term that we've talked about in our previous episodes on Marxism. So it's considered as a sublation or to translate into everyday English, a kind of elevation on philosophical events, on politics of truth, or on uh, ontology of the subject. 
So another scholar, Kenneth Reinhard, views Bajou's translation as as a sort of Lacanian sublimation of an object to the status of a thing, which is precisely to defamiliarize it, to bring out its strangeness about Plato and Platonism. In this way, Bajou's translation is viewed as a refusal of the linguistic term of the century, which emphasized or even idolized the logos or words. The refusal of indulging in etymologies and alleged untranslatables or privileging the aura of the original is pretty much post-Hedegarian thinking. So think about it. And in doing so, it gives the history of philosophy different beginning, according to Abder, which is quite a post-structuralist thinking as well. So what Abder proposes here is the withdrawal from authority of language elevation of university over equivocation, of idea over language, of transparency over opacity, of transmission over hermeneutics. And in doing so, one, and often translators and scholars in this case, subordinate translation to philosophy, to the truth, given that the philosophization of world, in fact, remains a fundamental problem, demanding the re-examination of literary history through the history of translation. And therefore, just as Kilito said, the history of philosophy is, at its core, the history of translation. Right. So how does Apter execute the notion of untranslatability as a praxis? What are her examples? Well, Abder mostly draws on her previous works like The Translation Zone, A New Comparative Literature in 2006, which was further extended through essays such as Untranslatables, A World System, and Translation at the Checkpoint, and filtered through her editorial co-stewardship with Michael Wood and Jack Lazara, her colleague, of the English translation of Barbara Casson's European Vocabulary of Philosophy's Dictionary of Untranslatable. As she herself acknowledged, examples are drawn in a rather seemingly loose but selective series of key tapoi in literary studies. Such tapoi include the globalization, um, literary world system, national canon formation, periodicity, critical humanism, authorial ownership and de-ownership, law and literature, and pedagogy as well. Wouldn't each of these be worthy of a doctoral dissertation? Well, each certainly can be, but if you are a leading scholar in the field, it's totally fine doing that. These examples are completely out of my comfort zone, to be honest, since they're not my areas of expertise, but I know I've learned a lot and they're completely fun to read. They do seem not very representative and universal to some extent, but even so, readers can always skip the chapters that they're not interested in. But with my background in theory and linguistics, I particularly enjoyed reading her part two, especially when she discusses a series of keywords derived from Casson's vocabulary. Even if my scholarship doesn't often engage with politics, I also found her discussion on global security and checkpoints absolutely fascinating. Her subjects range from American postmodernist fiction, and especially my favorite Thomas Pynchon, to Palestinian film and installation art from Plato and Aristotle through Kant, Heidegger, and Lacan to Balibar and Bajou, and really featuring close readings of Moretti, De Beauvoir, Auerbach, Said, Derrida, Kilito, Flaubert, and many others. She is really a very knowledgeable scholar. 
So in this sense, even if there's not a lot of review articles um, in and outside of the academy, it also means seldom is there a scholar able to match up to her level of intellectual intensity or even to be just to be able to simply engage in her conversation, right? And another reason might be that most academic monographs aren't read by very many people. Well, certainly that's the case, too. Against World Literature is a significant work at the intersection of translation study and comparative literature. There's no small amount of excitement when she talks about the importance of promoting untranslatability as a theoretical bridge for spanning the disciplines. Yeah, I felt the excitement, too. So why don't we read this part aloud? Okay, here it goes. World Literature's Literary World Systems and Literary History, The Politics of Periodization, The Translation of Philosophy and Theory, The Relation Between Sovereign and Linguistic Borders at the Checkpoint, The Bounds of Non-Secular Proscription and Cultural Sanction, Free versus Privatized Authorial Property, The Poetics of Translational Difference, as well as Ethical, Cosmological, and Theological Dimensions of Worldliness. Both translation studies and world literature extended the promise of worldly criticism, politicized cosmopolitanism, comparable aesthetics galvanized by a deprovincialized Europe, and academically redistributed area studies, and a redrawn map of language geopolitics. Partnered, they could still deliver more. Translation theory as Welt literature would challenge flaccid globalisms that paid lip service to alterity, while doing little more than to buttress neoliberal big-tent syllabi taught in English. Unfortunately, though, translation studies and world literature, even in their renewed and best-intentioned guises, inevitably fell short of such objectives. Their institutional forms could not escape being too pluralistic, too ecumenical, insufficiently hardline in the face of appropriation by universities seeking to justify the downsizing of national literature departments or the cutting of foreign language instruction. A course in translation carrying a distinguished imprimatur as a professional training that could even produce measurable outcomes was often deployed as a patch for humanity's light. As for literary education that was political apovery, in its amenability to soft diplomacy, and its default to models of one-worldedness freighted with the psychopolitical burden of delusional democracy. Here, the psychopolitics of planetary dysphoria were itself definable as the depression of the globe or the thematic. Right. What we see here is how a leading scholar defines the field and envisions its future, It is among the few academic monographs at the time to be able to openly criticize Complet as an institutionalized field, and many of her visions expressed here are still as sharp as they are prescient today. Let's transition to the reception of Apter's book, which you briefly mentioned at the beginning of the episode. As you've described, it's an arcane book filled with academic concepts, and so does not have a lot of reviews. There is a short comment from Spivak. Maybe you can read it to our listeners. And here it is, just following Emily Abbotter's dizzying array of texts from diverse traditions and times, including a tightly argued discussion of the philosophicality of Samoan de Beauvoir, lost in translation to the best of the U.S. feminists, embracing much experimental material, all read with meticulous care, is an education. No one has thought the question of world literature in greater depth 
at once rethinking comparative literature as translatability studies. Apart from this, we also have David Damrosh's thorough review of the book. Oh, it's a lot fun to read. I would highly recommend a Damrosh's review to whoever are listening to our podcast, not just because that Damrosh is a good and clear writer, and of course, him being the leading scholar in comparative literature, but there are a lot of zings and spiciness in his review. So uh, maybe you can read the beginning of it. Sure. Here it goes. It is surely a mark of some kind of success when a movement begins to be attacked by its own participants. We may recall the surrealist debates of the 1920s with her rival manifestos, counterblasts, and excommunications, or Roland Barthes' irritated insistence in the mid-1970s that he was not, after all, a structuralist. Emily Apter's new book suggests that the resurgent study of world literature has achieved a comparable standing today. Haha, very funny. This is actually a counterattack on Apter's accusation on Damrosh's editorial Routledge Companion to World Literature, which was co-edited with Theo Dehan and Kadir in 2012. In her beginning of the book, she did refer to it as the uh, as this sort of entrepreneurial bulimic drive to anthologize and curricularize the world's cultural resources. Wow. I know. Well, elsewhere in the review, Damrosh certainly pointed out that the book is not engaging much uh, translation theories, even though her book is more pedagogical than theoretical, as some would say. I agree that Abitur seems to care about issues or examples where her own areas of expertise lie. Damrosh certainly took issue with the absence of examples from the East to warn us the potential that our writings can still sound Western-centric without being aware of it. This is, of course, the, the language limitation innate in any complex scholar, right? But doing so basically means a completely new project, just as Damrosh further highlighted that even within Anglophone scholarship, Abitur could have raised and engaged with works such as Maz Rosendahl Thompson's 2008 Mapping World Literature, Ursula Hayes' 2008 Sense of Place and Sense of Planet, The Environmental Imagination of the Global, um, Gilo Kadir's 2010 Memos from the Besieged City, Lifelines for Cultural Sustainability, uh, or Jacob Edmonds' 2012, A Common Strangeness, Contemporary Poetry, Cross-Cultural Encounter, Comparative Literature. Damrosh also pointed out that if one talks about the issue of untranslatability, there simply wasn't enough engagement and intervention with the theory itself. But for me, there's a perfect opportunity in his suggestion for another project to be able to engage with a cultural turn of contemporary translation studies as Susan Bassnett, Andre Lefebvre, Gideon Turi, Harish Trivedi, or Lawrence Venuti. I especially love the way in which Damrosh reminds scholars of translation to be mindful of that sort of necessary intervention. So these suggestions are, in fact, excellent venues of future inquiries. And this is also the enigma and beauty of scholarly debates, right? Which is always pushing for new ideas. Well... At least if you don't take criticism too seriously. That's right. If you like this episode, you can show your support through theglobalnovel.com slash donate so we can keep making academic education and literature accessible to more and more listeners of the world. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>